the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And I'm on. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Welcome to the show. Good morning to everybody. Boy, is it hot here in Florida. Oh my gosh, I think I'm going to die. I can't ride my bicycle during the day. It's too hot. I'm going to melt. I don't know about you, Ken, but I'm ready for some relief. I could use a break from the heat, too. Yes, sir. Ooh, wee. <laughs> Can't wait I to think, see my electric bill this month. <laughs> yeah, I think Tampa had record uh, temperatures yesterday or the day before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, 99, so, I think, was a record high. Oh, my I God. I think we tied the record, yeah. Tied it, yeah. Woo. So uh, for those of you who are up in the mountains in North Carolina, stay there. Don't come <laughs> down. <laughs> We'd love to have you, but I think you'll melt. We'll see you in September, yeah. So I had a great, uh, an interesting week. I uh, I had a melanoma, a malignant melanoma, taken off my shoulder a few years ago. A melanoma is a skin cancer. It's probably the worst of the skin cancers. It's uh, uh, a, a cancer that's made up of the melanocyte cells. And melanocytes are the one that, that give us our pigment. So the more melanocytes you have, the more pigment you have. And uh, this is a bad actor unless you get it off early. And it's uh, if it gets to stage four metastatic disease, then your your chances of survival are less than 25% in five years. If you get it while it's uh, just localized to the skin, then your your chances of survival are 98 to 100%. But uh, so at any rate, the wife is all worried. And she said she wanted me to get a PET scan. You probably don't know what that is, but let me tell you what a PET scan is. It's a specialized nuclear medicine, nuclear radiology study. And what happens is the uh, the tech will come in and start an intravenous line, and they'll squirt you with some fluorodeoxyglucose, which is uh, a radioisotope. It's short-lived. It, it only has a, a couple hours of activity. And it's got a radioactive uh, oxygen hook to it that's part of the glucose, the sugar molecule. Well, why do you do that? Well, we know that metabolically active cells uh, are more likely to take up more glucose. So we squirt this in, and because it's hooked uh, to some other, other uh, atoms, it will stay inside of the cells longer. So it gets taken up by these very active, hyperactive cells, cancer cells being more active than, than the normal cells in the body. And that's, that's one of the uh, hallmarks of a cancer is that it is uh, uh, more aggressive, more metabolically active and reproducing faster than the, the cell line that it came from. So then it takes over. <clears throat> so at any rate, they squirt you with this stuff and they want you to stay in a room and uh, just lay there quietly. They give you a reclining chair. And I had to uh, 
put in an order for a study to do at the hospital because the tech was, from the hospital was texting me that he needed it because we were doing the study at noon and it was this was like at 8.30 or 9 in the morning. So I asked him if I could go outside and get my computer and they said, yeah, I guess you have to. And I got it and I, I put the orders in. So at any rate, uh, the radioactivity is taken up by active tissues. So if you're running around and your, and your muscles and your legs are going to light up. And so my legs lit up like a candle. And, uh, and of course, your brain and your heart light up because those are the two organs that need to use uh, oxygen and energy and sugar continuously. They are the metabolically active all the time active uh, organs in the body, even when we're sleeping, they're active. And so my brain, my head looks like it's a Roman candle and my heart looks like it's a, a, a horseshoe on fire and, and my legs look like they're uh, sticks of dynamite. <laughs> it's kind of interesting to see. Fortunately, I didn't have any evidence of metastatic disease or recurrence of the cancer. But uh, this, is a, this is a good test and one that we use frequently. And you say, well, is it dangerous to get this radioactivity in you? This is such a small amount of radioactivity and it has such a short half-life that there is really no danger from it. <clears throat> the tech did tell me, oh, well, make sure you don't go around any pregnant women or children. I'm like, come on. It's not like I'm going to go up to the OBGYN ward on the hospital and run around. But... You know, that's the only thing they worry about, and there's really no evidence that it does any damage there either. However, we're trying to be safe and careful. Now, what's the deal with these uh, malignant melanomas? Well, they're bad actors if they get out of the barn. And uh, so what's your predisposition? Well, if you have a family history of, of skin cancers or melanomas, if you have a, a irregular prominent mole, a dark mole that starts changing color or shape, then you need to see somebody about that. If there's a family history of pancreatic cancer or astrocytomas, those are a type of brain cancers, you're at increased risk because there's a genetic component to it. If you've had one of these cancers before, uh, if you've had a lot of sun exposure, which I have because I was a swimmer and my shoulders got sunburned all the time, so it's not not surprising that that would, uh, that would be the spot where one would pop up. And uh, so if you have a mole or uh, a, a little, little birthmark or something and it starts changing size or color or symmetry or starts bleeding or gets a little ulcer on it, get in and see your doctor about that. And there's also a family uh, inherited disease called multiple nevus, N-E-V-U-S, nevus just means mole. Uh, so you need a total body examination uh, once a year if you're at high risk or if you've had a lot of sun exposure, especially as we get older. It's important. So get your, your doctor uh, or your dermatologist to, to do that. And uh, my wife uh, takes pictures of every little thing on my body and shows it to me. And there are certain types of uh, light that we can shine on tumors to see if they're malignant or not. And get CAT scans, and of course, if you've had um, a melanoma previously, then you want to make sure you don't have metastasis. <clears throat> and the uh, the way to do that is with the PET scan. That's the best way. So the ABCDs of this are asymmetry if it's irregular, uh, color change, very dark black or blue, 
or if it's uh, multicolored, if it's greater than uh, a half a centimeter, which is about uh, less than a quarter of an inch, then you need to be worried about that. And so you go and you get the workup from your, your doctor and uh, you get this thing taken off. Now, if there are lymph nodes in the area that are involved, then the doctors will, the surgeon will want to dissect those out and see how far up the lymph node chain it goes. Uh, there are medical treatments once it's out of the barn and once it's uh, gone into the lymph nodes or, or it's metastatic. Unfortunately, we do have some, some fairly good therapies now. We've got the uh, immunotherapy with ipilimumab, Mab, Ipilimumab. God, these these monoclonal antibodies are tough to pronounce, Ken. Oh, my God. Easy for you to say, Doc. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you talked yeah. about the PET scan, I thought you were talking about my dog. So, you know, this is all educational to me. Well, uh, you know, Hillary's PET scan is uh, holding the cat or the cat scan. Did you see that? The Obamacare CAT scan, you hold the cat over the patient. (laughs) 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 You're making me cough. I'm sorry. I'm 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 not trying to make you laugh. It's very very serious stuff we're talking about here. Very serious. So we've got all these monoclonal antibodies out now. And Jimmy Carter, by the way, had a a metastatic melanoma. And uh, he had big mets in his belly and everything. And they gave him one of these monoclonal antibodies and it cured him much to the chagrin of, of the right wing. <laughs> so uh, I think he's going to live about 150, old Jimmy there. He's, I think he is. Yeah. I, we, we're not sure. We may, we may have already embalmed him, and it's just a, a, rob, a mechanical machine that's moving him around at this point. But <laughs> he, he's looking old, dude. Yeah, well, he is old. I mean, he is. Yeah. He's, what, is the 90s now? Well, at least, yeah. Still building houses, though, I think, isn't he? Well, I don't know how how well he's swinging a hammer, but I'm sure he goes and, and looks to see what's going on. Habitat for Humanity. That's a it, good, yeah, right. That's a nice thing, isn't it? It is. No. They do a lot of good work. So. Yeah. So at any rate, there's these monoclonal antibodies. We've got the old-time interferons that we use. And when it's really gotten bad and there's no other treatment, then we go to the chemotherapies that uh, we use for other diseases and uh, so there's uh, there's there's a lot of, of things that we can do, but still, when this gets out of the barn, it's a bad disease. So uh, I want you to take it seriously, and I want you to get with your doctor if you think you have any uh, signs or symptoms of this disease. Localized disease, you got a 98% chance of surviving. Regional, when it gets out into the lymph nodes, you're at about 64% survival in five years. And then when it's distant, that is when it's in the organs or the brain or the lungs or the kidneys or wherever, then, you know, you're, you're talking about toast, baby, 22%. So get that and get after it. And then the, first of all, the main treatment is surgery. Get that puppy cut out. Get it out early. Don't wait. If you have something, jump up. Mine was kind of, it was black. It was, it was really hard. And, uh, you know, when it first popped up, I said, hmm. That looks like that could be just a little old man skin change. And then when it didn't go away after a couple of weeks and it got harder, I was like, ooh, let's get this off because I think this is a malignant melanoma and it's in the right spot. So that's the, uh, that's the story on malignant melanoma. So that, that's, my, uh, that's my medical story for the day. Did you hear about the jump in the number of uh, 
COVID positive patients in Florida. Oh my gosh, what's it? Nine or 10,000 yesterday. Did you hear that, Ken? Yeah, it was over 9,000 yesterday alone. Yeah. You know, you would think that this is because, uh, uh, we're doing something wrong. And of course we are, we're all going out without our mask and, and spreading it around. But I think that the market increase and market jump is because of the testing. And I don't know if you guys have them on your side of the bay. And here in St. Pete, we've got the American Family Clinic. This is a group out of Tennessee, and a guy from Alabama started this years ago. And he's got all these walk-in clinics now, and he's got a couple here in in, in St. Pete. Now, they probably have them over in Tampa, too. I can't imagine they don't. And they're doing free testing. And you can't even get in there. I mean, the line is an hour, an hour and a half, two hours long to get in and get tested. It's free. Of course, nothing's free. You know, they're billing your your insurance company because it's mandated by the state that the insurance companies pay for this, which, by the way, you pay for because you pay your premium. So directly or indirectly, you're paying for it. So they're testing all these people. And, of course, you're going to have a tremendous number of people uh, that will test positive. So we're, what, over 140,000 cases now uh, of, of testing positive. Uh, and this is, uh, this is a pretty big number. Uh, the total number tested so far is around 2 million. And we're at about 140,000 positive and uh, 1.7 million negative, somewhere in there. So uh, we've got about a 7% positive uh, uh, percentage of the population tested as positive. This is not going to be uh, a perfect sample because the people that are going to go and get tested are not necessarily the average Joe. They may be more concerned about their health. Uh, so there may be some emotional problems. They may be people who are exposed. Uh, they may be younger people who are more likely to have picked this up because they're out socializing without mask. And they want to know. My son wanted to know, so we tested him. He was negative. <clears throat> so this is a big deal in terms of epidemiology. And although it doesn't give us a real accurate picture of the actual percentage of people who are positive in the state, it gives us a snapshot of this subset of people who go to get tested, people who are symptomatic, people who have had risk factors like uh, the young people, and people who are just nervous Nellies and want to know. Okay, so you're positive. Now what? Well, your risk of uh, succumbing to this is very small if you're under 50, 60 years of age. It starts to go up with, uh, with age, of course, and I've said this before. And when you get that to that 60 or 70 age mark, then, the, then you're getting to trouble. But a lot of these people are people who have pre, predisposing uh, problems underlying heart or lung disease, diabetes, hypertension, so on and so forth. And say, so, well, that's a lot of us. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So the hospitalization goes up uh, with with age. It starts at about the uh, you start getting the big jump at about 35 to 44. And then the biggest group that are hospitalized are the 65 to 74. And the death rate is is logarithmic. It it starts. It's very small in, in five to 14 year old zero in Florida, uh, under five zero in Florida. And then when you get to the 15 to 24, we've only had five deaths, 25 to 34, 19 deaths, 35 to 44, 59. And uh, then when you get to the 55 to 64, you're at a 304. 
And when you get over 85, it's 1,200 deaths in, in climbing. And so it, this is a logarithmic uh, death curve, and it is hitting basically the retirees. Uh, it's going to get more retirees, and that's uh, about a quarter to a third of the hospitalized retirees over 85 that are dying from this. <clears throat> so what are the social implications? Well, of course, we're sorry to see grandma and grandpa go. We love them, and 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 uh, they're important to us, and and every life counts, I guess. I'm, I'm not sure about that, but that's that's the mantra that we're preaching now. But uh, let's face it, you know, losing an 85-year-old is not the same as losing a 35-year-old. I mean, we've got a 35-year-old who has uh, another 20 to 30 years of productivity ahead of them and is of significance to society in that they can add uh, something back. Now, you can say, well, old people can add something, too. That's true. I mean, you know, Ken, you got to have the old elephants, the old female elephants, because they remember where the water holes are. <laughs> That's right. They do. That's right. There, is, there they, is something to be said for institutional knowledge. I mean, you yeah. you pass that down. You pass that down. And uh, we want to have our old people, like me, uh, share my knowledge with the younger doctors and nurses. And uh, oddly enough, they, they at times look up to me and ask me questions. And, you know, it's kind of flattering. Uh, but I do have some knowledge that that they don't because I've just been around longer and I've seen more. So we don't want to kill off all of our old people too fast. First, we got to train their brains and get all that knowledge out. We need some kind of computer that we can attach to the brain and just suck everything out. And then once, once it's gone, then we don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Just get rid of it. Get rid of it, man. Okay. (laughs) Get rid of it. What the hell? Go get the COVID, go to the hospital and die. (laughs) Leave those thoughts here though, please. So yeah, leave your thoughts and your, you you know, you want to get the family history and all that. Cause there's things you don't know. I mean, I, I enjoyed many a day talking with my grandfather when he was in his, uh, late 70s and early 80s, and I was thinking, you know, I didn't know any of that about the family. I didn't know he came from Germany. I didn't know he went through Ellis Island and that kind of thing. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you learn a lot. My mother shared things with me when she got older that she did not share with me when she was younger. I didn't know that her classmate, Roy Martin, was the one of the two young doctors that took care of the, uh, of the first group of Nazi war criminals at Nuremberg, including Hermann Goering and, and uh, Keitel and and Dernitz and all the, you know, all really all the top guys that survived. Um, so talk to the old folks. Yeah. So, you know, find out what's going on. And I, then, mean, I don't, I don't uh, know that anybody really cares anymore, but, uh, for me, historically, I think it's important because my son calls me a Nazi now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, I don't think he has an appreciation for what a true no. Nazi is. So no. And, you know, trying to share that knowledge with him, at this point, it's not going to work. But in a few years, he may say, Dad, what do you know about the Nazis? And I'll be able to share something with yeah. him. And then he can pass that on to his kids. And, and of course, we've got Uncle Jackie's Purple Heart hanging downstairs. And he he died, as I told you guys before, uh, shot down over the North Sea, coming back from a bombing mission over Germany during World War II. He was in a B-17. So getting back to the uh, Corona COVID Wuhan Chinese whatever virus, uh, it's an equal opportunity uh, employer, male and female. Uh, it's equally uh, deadly. It's about 50-50. It doesn't have any predilection for uh, race or gender. Uh, it, it 
does like to kill older people. And uh, so the lesson here is that if you are older, uh, if you are over 50, especially, uh, even 45, you should be wearing a mask when you go out in public. That's important. And we had uh, four or five restaurants down in, in Gulfport. I live near Gulfport. Actually, I'm in Gulfport, but uh, we're, we're about a mile away from the, uh, from the strip down in Gulfport, which has become very popular in the Tampa Bay area and a big tourist destination. Uh, so there's a number of restaurants down there, which are pretty decent, and several of them have had employees test positive. Uh, a couple of them have decided to close. Uh, others have changed their, their policies and uh, are making their waiters and waitresses all wear a mask, doing a little better job. So if you go out, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't go out. I'm saying if you go out, then you should wear a mask. If you're going out to dinner, uh, if you're going to a restaurant, see if you can get outdoor seating. You're less likely to get the virus sitting outside with the wind blowing. The wind shear is going to break up the micro droplets that you can't see that can hang in the air for uh, hours and can cause this disease and spread it. So uh, put on your mask and uh, make sure that the waiters and waitresses are wearing their mask. We had a guy uh, down here at uh, the restaurant we went to Friday night in Gulfport, and he had the mask over his mouth but not his nose. <laughs> and I said, dude, you know, it doesn't work if you have your nose exposed. <laughs> so I made him put it up over his nose. And, you know, Dr. Bill's kind of a little nudnik, uh, but, but we need nudniks. We need people to tell us, wear your mask and wear it properly. This will cut down on transmission and on reception of this virus. So do it, for God's sakes. This is important. Uh, I, you know, I don't care, personally, uh, if you don't want to take care of yourself. I don't care what happens to you personally. But professionally, I've got an obligation to to talk to you about this. And also you're going to clog up the hospital and uh, we are, are slammed. I mean, we've got, we went from, Ken, we went from 40 patients in our little hospital to 120 in three days. Whoa. And 40 to 50 of those were COVID or coronavirus patients that we have in the hospital now. Now, granted, our, our governor who rightly has said that the, the nursing homes have to send the COVID-positive patients to the hospital. Granted that we're getting patients who are not that sick and that we're housing basically for a week or two uh, until we can clear them of the virus. But uh, still, we've got uh, a number of people, and we've had a few deaths now at our hospital. Uh, we've got a number of people who have required treatment, and we've got the remdesivir, as I've told you guys before, that works. Uh, we've got the steroids, the dexamethasone, or the equivalents, which work. We've got the anticoagulants like Coumadin and, and Xeralto and Apixaban and, and uh, you know, all these other things, heparin and, and uh, Lovenox. And we use these things. And, by the way, you might want to take an aspirin every day. That might be uh, mildly prophylactic to help keep you from getting this, or if you do get it, not get it too bad. So we're doing a much better job. The death rate is actually going down, uh, and despite all of the hysteria uh, and the president's inability to to uh, adequately uh, convey his message to the masses, I actually understand him. Uh, I, I took an extra course on understanding weird people in college, <laughs> and 
as part of my English major. But, you know, he's saying it's not as big a threat as it was and things like that. And it isn't. I mean, proportionately, yes, the numbers are increasing, but the uh, the percentage of people who are dying from this are, is falling. And, you know, actually, we until we get a vaccine, we do want it to spread, but slowly, slowly through the population, because we want to get to the herd immunity, which is about 60 to 70 percent of the population positive. I'm guessing that we're maybe a 10 to 20 percent now of the overall population, maybe not even that much. But I think that we will get there. Uh, now, it might take a little bit more time, uh, but we don't want it to rip too fast through the, through the population, especially the older people. Let the young ones get it. Uh, a few of them will drop dead, but that's okay. We, we need that herd immunity. We have to think in terms of our overall societal health. And, you know, it's important <clears throat> for doctors to be concerned about the individual patient. And it's important for families to care about their family members. Each individual family member is important. But, you know, it, it, at a societal level, uh, we have to make decisions about uh, how we're going to handle this. And we're going to have to expect a certain number of casualties. It's just like warfare. Uh, you have to expect a certain number of casualties if you're going to send troops into the field. We want to minimize those casualties, and that's been the mantra of the uh, War College and the planners over the past two or three decades. And I'm going to talk about the Korean War in the second half of the show. And uh, we'll get into uh, how to plan a little better warfare and, and to protect ourselves so that there's minimal casualties. But I, I think that we have to be realistic about this. And I was talking with some of the guys at the lunch table yesterday, and I said, look, and I've, I think I've told you this before, Ken, if we lost a million people from this virus in the United States, you're talking about one-third of one percent of the population. And it's going to be mostly retirees, people who are on Medicare and Social Security. And uh, their, their productive years are pretty much over. That doesn't mean that they don't have something to offer, and we've just talked about that. And, and certainly a lot of the old guys in my neighborhood are still uh, doing projects and repairing things and helping uh, you know, the older uh, widows in the neighborhood to uh, take care of their condos and, and their townhomes. So I think that there is certainly a lot of value to us older guys and gals, but let's face it, uh, the world's not going to end if a million elderly Americans die over the next year or two from this virus. In fact, economically, it will probably be better for the country because it'll cut down on the number of uh, Medicare and Social Security recipients. And remember, a lot of the people who are dying from this, the older people, have major underlying medical problems. So they're part of that small 5 to 10 percent of the Medicare population that's consuming 95 percent of the Medicare resources. And you can say, that's pretty harsh, pretty cold, Doc, but, you know, that's a fact, Jack. And you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not saying go out and, and kill old people, although there's a couple of neighbors that I'm looking at kind of, <laughs> one of them called me a redneck. <laughs> oh. That wasn't nice at all. That hurt my feelings, Ken. Um, but uh, no, you know, my neighborhood's pretty pretty nice. It's, you know, upper middle class. They're, they're nice people for the most part. Uh, retired, middle management, that sort of thing. 
so I don't have any problems with my neighbors, really. And I would I would be sad to see my friends leave me, who I've come to know over the past several months. Uh, we've had a lot of fun. We took our next door neighbor, Barb, out to to a dinner Friday when we went down to Gulfport. And she's in her 80s, and she is just a stitch. She is so funny. I don't know if I told you this, uh, Ken. We were, uh, Roger and Barb and I were over at the pool, and there's a, an area that's underneath the, the, the roof, kind of like a portico, and it was pouring down rain, and I'd had a couple of uh, Heinekens, and so I really, really had to go. And so I said, oh, Roger, I can't hold it anymore. I'm going to go out here in the bushes. No, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, oh, my God. And so I turned to Barb, and I said, hey, Barb, can I borrow one of your Depends? <laughs> so, well, she made a very nasty gesture with her hand towards <laughs> me. <laughs> but we have we have a great time. We laugh and have fun. And I'm surprised we didn't get kicked out of the pool area, but there was nobody else there. <laughs> but at any rate, it's important that we value all life, but, but we have to make some triage decisions at times. We have to. We don't have a choice because if we try to use up all of our resources for somebody who is not salvageable, then we're, we're committing uh, a sin against society because we're not allocating those resources appropriately. And that's part of what we do as doctors is we think about how we're going to use our resources and who should get it and when we should say enough is enough. Now, there are some doctors who will try to keep a patient alive forever and ever, and uh, I don't know what their motivations are. I don't know if they uh, feel guilty about losing a patient or if they uh, have some financial interest in keeping the patient alive so they can continue to bill for visits or what. But, you know, I, I talk with families uh, frequently, and I say, I I'm not the type of doctor that wants to keep your, your mom or dad uh, on the ventilator forever. But I do think that we should give it a day or two and see if they turn around. And if it's hopeless, I'll tell them right away. I'll say, look, this is hopeless. <clears throat> Your family member is brain dead. Uh, there's no activity and there's really no reason to go on. But if there's some chance, and, and sometimes families need a day or two because they're not ready to let go. Uh, and I've done this with families, knowing that the patient's not going to make it. I will say to them, let's, let's, let's give it a day or two. And you, you kind of prepare the, the, the scene. You, as the Irish say, you hang crepe. You, the, for the Irish wakes, they'd hang black crepe or, uh, around the, uh, the living room before they would set the body up for the, for the wake. So I hang the crepe for the family and help them get to the point where they can let go. And then uh, if they say, well, you know, it's hopeless, I say, <clears throat> I agree. And so then we'll, we'll uh, discontinue life support. So there's a time to, to try and a time to let go. There's, there's just a time that you say it's no longer uh, a, a salvageable, viable situation. And I think that's in, in every aspect of life that, you know, when, you, when you've exhausted all the other avenues you can, uh, then there's sometimes when you just got to say, well, I, I can't fix this. I'm going to quit. And I think that we have to think about this as a, at a societal level, too. <clears throat> and so the doctors, they, they're just appalled that I'm saying, well, look, if we lose a million people, it's not the end of the country. 
And they're like, oh, my God, we don't want to lose a million people. I said, that's because you're doctors and you're trained to think of each individual person in each individual case. And, you know, we are. That's what we're trained to do. Our job is to take care of the patient at hand <laughs> or the, the patients at hand. But we also have to think on a societal level. Well, with that, I'm going to go grab a cup of joe. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the Korean War and some lessons we have learned from that. And Ken, I'm with you, buddy. Love you guys. I'll be right back. I'm Dr. Bill. I don't want to hold you back With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Worldwide confirmed coronavirus infections have hit the 10 million mark as voters in Poland and France go to the polls for virus-delayed elections today. Vice President Mike Pence has called off campaign events in Florida and Arizona after surges in infections prompted worries that the U.S. is having trouble holding down the outbreak. New clusters of cases at a Swiss nightclub and in the central English city of Leicester show that the virus is still circulating widely in Europe, though not at the exponential rate of growth seen in other parts of the world. Pence will still travel to Florida, Arizona, and Texas this week to meet with Republican governors. Elsewhere, people on six continents are getting jabs in the race for a COVID-19 vaccine entering a defining summer. The U.S. is poised to start even bigger studies next month to prove if any shot really works. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Dr. Bill here. With social distancing and sheltering in place, telemedicine is here. Bay Area Medical Home of Can Care Clinic offers telemedicine for new and established patients. You can see me without an office visit. Schedule an appointment at 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. When it's time for your appointment, type this web address into your cell phone or computer web browser. Doxy.me forward slash Bay Area Med. A cell phone works well and is all you really need. For computers, you need a web camera and speakers. We'll give you this address when you call for your appointment. We accept most insurances and travel insurances. Canadians and visitors, please call your travel insurance company for an authorization number prior to the visit. Co-pays and deductibles apply. Self-pay rates are available. Just ask. We accept credit cards, PayPal, and Stripe. 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Balance of Nature, changing the world one life at a time. When I first started Balance of Nature, I was hesitant, but two months into the product, I began to see the difference. And I have to really admit, I was totally surprised. I went from swelling feet to no swelling feet 
the first of May was the first time this year I jogged in three years. And not just jog three laps, I did 17 laps. So I'm feeling alive and not sluggish and tired, I would really like to say. You have to try it so you can see the results for yourself. Even my girlfriend downstairs, I said, you need to try it. She says, I'm thinking, I said, okay, well, why are you still tired and I'm still beating you up the block? It's okay. Because <laughs> that's all I'm going to do. I mean, she's taller than me and I move faster than her now. That's because the energy I'm getting from Balance of Nature. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code RESULTS. Take AM860, The Answer, with you wherever you go with our mobile app, theanswertampa.com, Alexa, TuneIn, iHeart, and at radio.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. The Dean of American Conservative Pundits, George Will, joins me. We'll bemoan the fate of baseball together. I don't think George is any more optimistic about the season ahead, if you can call it that, than I am. We'll find out on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. Weekday mornings at 6 on AM 860, The Answer. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Hazy sunshine and it will be very hot. Today's high, 95. Mainly cloudy tonight, low 81. Partly sunny with a shower or a thunderstorm tomorrow, high 94. Partly cloudy tomorrow night, low 80. Sunshine on Tuesday, high 93. That's your Aki weather forecast. I'm Jonathan Reed for AM 860, The Answer. And I'm back. This is Dr. Bill. A little bit of K-pop, the Korean uh, pop music band. They're making a big hit all over the world. Oh, boy. Well, this week uh, is the 70th anniversary of the... Korean War, and most people don't know much about this war or about Korea. I'm married a Korean, so I've gotten a lot of history and uh, have studied a lot in the Korean Peninsula. Fascinating. Uh, the Korean Peninsula is in Northeast Asia. It's right across from Japan. You can actually see Japan from uh, some of the mountains on the east coast of uh, South Central Korea. The peninsula is split on, along the 38th parallel between North Korea and South Korea. North Korea, Kim Jong-un, uh, he is the grandson of the, uh, the original uh, dictator who was backed by Stalin and Mao Zedong. And uh, they attacked South Korea after World War II. The Russians came in and, and grabbed a big chunk of Manchuria and headed into the Korean Peninsula, and the United States uh, decided to pitch a fit, and so the peninsula was divided into two, north and south, just like Vietnam. And so in June of 1950, the North decided, with the okay from Stalin and the assistance of, of the Russians and Chinese troops to back them up if they needed it, uh, that they would invade the South, and they did, and they almost took the entire South, the small uh, number of American troops that were there, <clears throat> and the South Korean army hunkered down at the very southeastern tip of the country, uh, the port of Busan. They set up a perimeter, and then MacArthur, General Douglas MacArthur, came and landed uh, on the northwest coast uh, at Incheon, or north central coast, and marched his way into Seoul and, 
and took back the, the southern part of the peninsula. Now, MacArthur was uh, a very arrogant guy and very self-assured, and uh, his, his uh, chief of intelligence was uh, an avid believer that the Chinese would not want to fight the United States because he didn't think that their troops were up to uh, facing ours, that they'd be afraid to do that. And he ignored a lot of intelligence warnings that the Chinese were massing along the border between North Korea and China. Now, North Korea borders China, the Manchurian province of China. It also borders a small part of, the, of Russia. The USSR was the country back then, but it still has a border with Russia. And so people don't know that. And they don't know that the Russians have been the big player uh, in, in many ways in the whole drama between North and South Korea and the United States and the rest of the world's involvement. Well, the North Koreans took it on the chin. You know, they, they lost, I don't know, over a half a million people and probably that many casualties in battle. And, uh, you know, it's, it's estimated that maybe four to five million people, civilians, were killed in this conflict as well. South Korea uh, lost a fair number as well. Uh, the uh, Chinese lost 600,000 or so, or not, I'm sorry, about 200,000. And the United States lost uh, 36,000. No, actually, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not, I was right. The Chinese lost about 600,000. The United States lost close to 40,000 and had uh, 103,000 casualties otherwise. And other UN troops were there. It was a UN operation, and it was primarily the United States with Great Britain and uh, uh, South Korea fighting together. But we had 17 other countries involved. So it was, it was not just us. And it was absolutely positively an attempt to stop the march of, of communism, of Stalinism, uh, from Russia and from uh, the Soviet Union and from China into the Korean Peninsula and to try to maintain uh, a foothold there. Well, why did we get into this mess anyway? Well, after the Korean, after the uh, World War II, the, the Koreans had been occupied by, uh, by Japan for about 50 years. And the uh, Japanese had treated the Koreans like uh, poor cousins and used them pretty much as servants. Uh, they had stripped the country of uh, most of its timber and resources. Uh, during World War II, they had taken off with all of the silverware they could find and all the metal objects uh, because they were running out of metal as we cut off their access to uh, Southeast Asia and uh, other parts of the world. And by the way, we were supplying them with oil and with uh, uh, necessary metals to build airplanes and equipment uh, before World War II. And we started cutting them off when they started invading uh, the Korean Peninsula and and China. And we said, look, if you're going to do this, we're not going to give you the supplies that you want. We're not going to sell you oil. We're not going to sell you chrome. We're not going to sell you steel. Uh, we're not going to sell you all the things that you need to build a war machine. We're not going to help you do this. We don't want you to do it. And that's one of the things that got the Japanese all upset with us and, and precipitated the attack on Pearl Harbor. So 
we were, after World War II, trying to uh, pull ourselves back from having been so extended in both the Atlantic and, and the European theater and in the Pacific theater. And we had troops in Japan, but we decided that our perimeter of defense would not include, initially, the South Korean Peninsula. And so we decided also that uh, we did not want to challenge the, uh, the communists in, in mainland China. And we backed away from Taiwan initially. And so we opened up uh, an opportunity for Stalin uh, to advance his, his uh, dictatorship uh, along with Mao uh, into Eastern Asia, Northeastern Asia. And so this opened up the opportunity for Stalin to come in. And after World War II, at the end of World War II, the Russians had marched into Manchuria, partly at the insistence of the United States, because we said that uh, we had been fighting, the Russians had been complaining that they had been fighting the Germans pretty much on their own for the first three years of the war until we uh, started heading up the, up the Italian peninsula. And uh, then on D-Day in 1944, uh, Actually, we were we were there, but uh, the Russians were putting out the biggest sacrifice. And we said, well, yeah, but we're putting out the big sacrifice in the Pacific. And so at the end of the war, we wanted them to come in. And the Russians thought, man, well, this is a good idea. Stupid Americans will go in and take some land and get some traction in that area. And they did. So we made a strategic mistake there. We should have just won the war against Japan by ourselves and said to heck with the uh, with the uh, the Russians, we don't need them in this this part of the fight. So we started committing soldiers there, and we got several hundred thousand in, into the fight, and we lost forty thousand roughly, which is a little bit less than we lost in Vietnam. We lost fifty thousand, and of course that that really got the country going. But a lot of people were still very patriotic about uh, the the idea of, of keeping the world from becoming communist. And this was a big deal. This was a big deal back then. A number of events happened that precipitated this, including the, uh, the pullback from the defensive perimeter to exclude Taiwan and the Korean Peninsula. We also uh, uh, had made some statements about our assessment of uh, the Chinese ability to fight us, and uh, they were not well armed. They did not have much, but they had Russia, and the Russians supplied the North Koreans and the Chinese with the necessary military hardware and munitions and uh, um, equipment that they needed to take this fight into the Korean Peninsula and to help the North Koreans, and uh, that opened up the opportunity for Stalin, who was ever an opportunist and just loved taking land, as we know, uh, and uh, suppressing anybody and everybody he could. And so this was their green light to go, and they did it. And it created a tremendous conflict that uh, resulted in four or five million deaths on the Korean Peninsula and in China. We did not cross into China. But the Chinese had, had warned us that if we crossed the 38th parallel, they would come in and help the North Koreans. Well, they probably would have come in anyway, but they were just waiting for the, 
the right moment to the, the right excuse to come in. And they actually didn't come in until we got up to the Yalu River. The Yalu River is the river that runs uh, between Manchuria and North Korea. And Manchuria is that northeastern province or state of China. And it is right next to, and there's ethnicity there between the North Koreans and the Manchurians. And so a lot of the Manchurians uh, had blood relatives in North Korea. You know, the borders weren't that well defined back then. But there was a a couple of bridges, and we didn't take them out because we didn't think that the Chinese would come across. Well, they were streaming across. They brought hundreds of thousands of troops across to fight us. And initially we thought that they were uh, crazy because they would uh, charge our lines and they'd be beating drums and blowing horns, and then they'd retreat, and then they'd charge again, and then they'd retreat, and they'd keep this up all day and all night, days on end. And uh, MacArthur didn't exactly know what was going on. Eventually, he was relieved of his command by Truman because he wanted to nuke the the Chinese, and he wanted to disobey uh, Truman's orders and uh, take his troops into, into Manchuria. And Truman said, you know, that's insubordinate, fired him. They brought in Matthew Ridgway, who was another uh, general. Ridgway was a little little more thoughtful in his approach. He realized that the Chinese were fighting in shifts. So they had three shifts. They had three eight-hour shifts of troops. And what they wanted to do was to keep the Americans awake as long as they could because they knew that they'd start making mistakes. And so they would come charging in and blowing horns and shooting guns and uh, beating on drums and keep the Americans awake. And then they'd retreat and then the next crew would come in and uh, they'd keep that up 24-7. And uh, when Ridgway figured that out, he readjusted his tactics. And we fought it to a stalemate. We ended up back at the 38th parallel. The 38th parallel uh, is where it, the countries are still divided, and that's where it started at the 38th parallel. So it's it's a big deal for the Koreans. And my wife uh, was born a couple of years after the war was over, but you know, it just devastated the countries for 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 two decades. Uh, South Korea was uh, just in terrible condition. You know, no infrastructure, and finally, uh, Bak Chung Hee came in in the 70s and took over and forced uh, some changes, but. What are the lessons from this? Don't forget about Russia. You know, we're focusing on China right now, and I don't have a problem with the president being concerned about the economic impact of uh, outsourcing all of our jobs to China. I think that uh, the, the leaders are right that we need to bring a lot of this back home, and we need to be more competitive in the world market. Um, but I also think that we need to remember that Russia has been the main player in the North Korean Peninsula for decades, and that after the surrender of Japan in 1945, uh, the Soviet army quickly took over and marched into Korea, and that they had been supplying the Koreans, and they had been propping up the Koreans. And they selected Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of Kim Jong-un, to be the new leader of the of South Korea, I mean North Korea. So this is uh, this is something that we have to take into account uh, when we're when we're uh, thinking about this, and we also have to think about 
our arrogance in overestimate and un, overestimating our abilities and underestimating uh, their abilities. And don't forget about soft power. Don't forget about how we uh, can use our American values and morals and way of life uh, and get people to like us and not hate us. Uh, that that's important, too, in winning the war, because there's a whole generation of Chinese that grew up thinking that we're the devil incarnate, that Americans are evil. Oh, we got Jeff on the phone. Jeff wants to talk. Come on, Jeff. We've got a couple of minutes. Hello, Dr. Bill. Uh, I wanted to tell you, you and I have something in common. We both married a Korean man. Um, my husband is a, mm, a twink by day and a diva at night. Does yours bear any resemblance? Uh, mine is, uh, my wife is, uh, she's, she's, uh, she's pretty tough. She's a pretty tough lady and she can kick me in the face. And, uh, when she gets drunk to show her love, she'll hit me with her fist in my jaw. So I have to keep my eye on her, but she is a hardworking sweetheart too. So I'm in love with her. Are you there? I think he Hello? left us. He left us. Oh, oh, well, at any rate, <clears throat> we thank you for calling and uh, sorry we lost you. So, Ken, you know, it's it's interesting that that this this whole thing, the whole historical thing keeps repeating itself. And uh, I got to tell you that uh, having gone to, to Korea two times now, South Korea, I am impressed. These people have built one hell of a country. And, you know, there's only about 55, 60 million South Koreans. And they have cornered the market on a, worldwide on appliances, electronics, automobiles. Uh, they're, they're big in circuit boards. And, uh, I mean, they're just, they're into everything. They, they are uh, really go-getters and, and hustling people. And uh, you got to wonder why the North doesn't want to um, make peace with the South and uh, let the South help them get their, their lifestyles up to, up to snuff. But <clears throat> there's something about this, uh, this whole dictatorship thing that, that people get brainwashed, you know, and they think that uh, their way of life is great, even if it's tougher and that, uh, that the affluent are evil and, reminds you of anything going on right now and that uh, <clears throat> we need to tear down the old history and build up the new socialist history. And I tell you, this is, this is not a good time in, in our history and this is going to backfire on the left. And uh, I, I don't want to see us get too, uh, too heavy handed with the young people who are rebelling right now. And I don't, I want us to use our soft power as much as we can, but we have to protect our history and our, our statues. Did you see where, where, uh, uh, I think it was, was it Princeton? I think that they're, you know, they had the Woodrow Wilson school of, of law or whatever it was. They're getting rid of the name Woodrow Wilson. Did you see that? Ridiculous. Why? Because Woodrow Wilson, uh, was a racist.